The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. How often do you wake up and wonder, what is the best way to leverage my time? And you just think there has to be a better way to multiply our company's efforts, our, our salespeople's efforts, our operations people's efforts. What's the best way to do it? What should we do? To answer that question, John Austinson. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joel. Appreciate you having me on the show today and excited to be here. You know, to answer that question, I would say it's putting the framework and the systems in place. I think about what I do on a day-to-day basis on the franchising side, wearing multiple hats, and I am constantly focused on how do I leverage my time? How do I leverage the time of my clients so that they can do more with the limited uh, resource of time that they have? Well, uh, I mean, so of course we have to uh, leverage our time and do that and all that kind of stuff. But uh, so you mentioned franchising. Why is franchising a, a great mechanism for leveraging? I mean, what what is what does that business model have innately uh, that's part of it that is leverageable? Yeah, absolutely. So rather, if you're a successful business and you're looking to scale and expand, let's say across the country, are you better off opening offices in individual cities and hiring a sales force? And uh, from a financial standpoint, really coming out of pocket. Or are you better off having locals that know that market buy into your business, open up local offices, um, utilizing their own money? So you're using other people's money, their local knowledge expertise, and they're doing what every corporate executive has ever wanted. And that's to have a team of people that are acting like owners, not employees. You know, one of the things that, that, that occurs to me about this, so you get other people to, uh, to basically offload some risk from you by putting in some capital. So they, they have, a, have a little skin in the game and, and they pay you, let's say, 6% of sales or whatever it is. It's rare for a business to make that much more than 6% of sales anyway, even after all the effort they put in. So if you can sort of get that without doing any work management operations and the whole thing, it seems like it's probably a pretty good idea. Absolutely. And what I remind companies of all the time is it's not just the royalty. You know, first off, there's several revenue streams. You get the franchise fee on the front end. Really, I view that as more of paying your sales and marketing expense. You're you're not going to get rich off of the franchise fee. The royalty, once you get to a critical mass, can be very lucrative. 
But the third piece that a lot of times companies overlook is the fact that it creates a new distribution channel. So if you're able to, uh, you know, offer a service or a product to those franchise owners that they either purchase directly from you or pass on to the customer, you're able to take markups on there. You know, perfect example, I used to be on the franchisor side with Shelf Genie Franchise. We built custom wooden boxes, uh, you know, pullouts for kitchens and pantries. Well, with that, we owned a manufacturing plant that actually produced the boxes. So while we were collecting franchise fees and royalties, where we made the most money that eventually led to a very profitable exit was on the markup that we took on the wooden boxes that we created custom for all of our franchise owners for their clients. Well, listen, I I imagine Subway is selling cups and napkins and printed materials to their franchisees too, right? I mean, that has to be a profit center for them. Absolutely. And it often gets overlooked because people get hung up on the royalties, but there's multiple streams and it can be those products, as you mentioned in that example, it could also be marketing services. It could be, um, you know, a number of different support services. As long as it's disclosed in franchise agreement, uh, you're able to uh, take that markup on. Yeah. And and, and that disclosure is important because there's a double dip, you know, and there's some self-dealing and some things and you have to put that on the table. And, but as long as everybody says, okay, and it's clean and clear, uh, you know, then it's it's an okay thing to do. The other thing that I really like about, uh, you know, franchising is everybody chips in 3% of their sales toward advertising. And they can buy collectively what they could never, ever do by themselves. And that's hard for entrepreneurial people to organize, you know. And so, I mean, we're talking about the franchisor side. But, you know, when you organize entrepreneurial people, people that want to be self-employed, they are great people. They are kick butt people. And when you give them ways to advertise new things, God, they will they will make that engine spin. What, what, right? Absolutely. I mean, is that what you notice? Oh, the shared buying power and being able to source that on the back end, it helps you and your local corporate op- operations. But obviously, that's part of the reason a franchisee is buying into your system is to be able to leverage that larger, larger spend. Um, in addition to that, I would say, um, you know, it's the services as well and the support. I mean, your alignment from a franchisor to a franchisee, you're perfectly aligned in a lot of ways because the better they do as a franchisee, the better the franchisor does, the more valuable the system becomes. Um, so there really is alignment between that relationship as well as between franchisees. And I see a lot of shared knowledge, shared experience. You know, if, if uh, in Santa Fe we're testing marketing vehicle A, and it works, then let's let our friends over in Dallas know about that as well. And so there's a lot of cross-pollination amongst franchise owners and shared best practices. When when does franchising work for a company to consider and when does it not work? Yeah, you know, I, I do have to remind a lot of businesses that, you know, while franchising can look great on paper, yeah, there, there are pluses and minuses. And, you know, one of the minuses I'd say is you wake up one day and all of a sudden you have a lot of kids around the country that have all paid to buy into your system and they're expecting um, a certain level of support. And so I think it's very important that you be clear up front and explain to them, here's what we're going to do and here's what we're not going to do. Um, but, you know, for a lot of businesses, if they have a model that can be leveraged, that can rely on local owners that may not have a background in that business to run, it's a great way to scale from a leverage standpoint and to scale quickly. Uh, There's one franchise system I work with uh, last year. They had two locations coming into the year. They had 500 territories sold by year end, not all open, but in the process of opening. And so if it's the right concept and the market is ready for it, you can scale very quickly. You know, 
My understanding is that the difference between licensing and franchising is the degree of control. Franchising, there's a lot more control than licensing. Uh, but even still, you know, a, a franchisee could kind of go sideways and, and who, who knows what they do. And uh, and you've got to police that. I mean, how, how big of a problem is that? Yeah, you know, it's not a big problem, but it's certainly something that has to be addressed up front. And again, going back to that agreement that is signed by the franchise owner, it really outlines what is allowed and what isn't allowed. Um, I work with a lot of candidates that are interested in franchising, um, and I have to tell them, you're too entrepreneurial. You don't want to live within the bounds. This isn't the right fit for you. But then there are many others, oftentimes many coming from corporate America that say, hey, I love the idea of a business in a box that everything for the most part has been figured out and I follow the playbook. Um, but at times you do see it go sour. And uh, when that happens, typically the franchisor is able to take back um, those units or territories uh, from the franchisee and resell them. How often, uh, you know, so sometimes the franchisee goes sideways, but how often is it that the franchisor does not supply the kind of support that franchise need, uh, franchisees need and then franchisees organize against the the mothership i mean i mean does that ever happen i mean i'm i mean it seems like uh domino's or pizza or one of those companies years ago had a big problem with their franchisees yeah it absolutely happens and that's why it is so important to look at that leadership team of the franchise um before you know making that decision to buy into it because uh, they've got to have experience not only in the industry but i would say in franchising and so if you're a business out there today that is considering franchising uh, as a way to scale. If you don't have a franchise background, I highly encourage you to bring in franchise leadership experience around you because franchising can be a different animal. Yeah. You know, I was involved in a deal where uh, uh, some guys uh, started franchising their first unit and they didn't really have any experience, but they sold it as a franchise. And that franchise, uh, it, it did not do well because they, they were practicing on the first or second guy. You know, they didn't, that's kind of what franchising is about, right? You're supposed to week work out the kinks. And then by the time you sell it to somebody, it's in a box and it should be working pretty good, right? I mean, how often, I mean, how often do companies just not get the timing of this right where they don't get the kinks worked out? And because it takes five or 10 or 20 stores to get the kinks worked out, Right. It does. No. And I think that's a very good point, Joel. I mean, you've got to have it worked out and, you know, you're only going to attract the right kind of candidates if you do have the kinks worked out. If you do have a track record, if you can address all of their questions, um, you know, it is more risky for someone to buy into an early stage franchise because uh, obviously, you know, the kinks haven't all been worked out. Not every marketing vehicle has been tested. There have been there are situations or circumstances in certain markets that haven't been seen before. Um, however, the on the flip side, the benefits would be preferred territory choice, uh, maybe a little more hands-on attention from the franchisor, and uh, really just shared support because your success is going to be so determinant of their future success. Um, you know, right now, just state of the franchise market, especially coming out of COVID, when a lot of people want to be business owners and scratch that itch, they're questioning the path they've been on. We're projecting franchise sales this year to be up 40% over pre-pandemic levels. So that is over the number of units that were sold two years ago. There is a re renaissance and an excitement around franchising. However, what you see as a result is a lot of emerging brands out there, and they're not all created equal. Some have the experience. Some have tested everything, as, you, as you've uh, mentioned. And some are a little too new and a little, a little too green behind the ears to, uh, to be out there at this stage.
That's interesting. That, that's so franchise more franchisees want to buy stores is what you're saying up by 40 percent so does Correct. that mean that more companies are considering adding a franchise component to their businesses absolutely you know, I mean, are, are a lot of companies thinking about it absolutely no and i'm having this conversation every day and you know two points there one there's so much more than food oftentimes when people think franchising they think fast food. And so I'm out there sharing the gospel of the fact that there are all these other sectors, whether it be health and wellness, whether it be automotive, whether it be property services, there's so many other sectors in which you can operate B2C services, B2B services that oftentimes are not on people's radar. So a lot of companies have never thought about franchising. Once they catch wind of, hey, this is a great way to scale. And the fact that private equity loves franchising. I mean, let's be honest, you look at the deals that are happening out there today, there are a lot of private equity deals taking place. I get calls every single day from private equity firms asking for emerging franchisors or large swaths of franchisees in some cases as well. So I do think that franchising is ending up on the radar of a lot of companies that previously hadn't considered it. So so what are these private equity companies looking for? Are they looking for franchisors that they can take over? Are, are they are they looking to do roll-ups of franchisee locations? I mean, what what exactly are they looking for? By and large, it's more on the franchisor side. Um, you know, I mentioned Shelf Genie. We just sold out to Neighborly recently. Um, you know, that, that's one that I've been with previously. But no, we're seeing a lot of interest in like property services. You know, those COVID resistant, uh, Amazon resistant type businesses, kind of the non-sexy, if you will. A lot of interest there at the franchisor level. So maybe a franchisor that has 25 locations, private equity likes the idea of coming in, leveraging up, really spending a lot in marketing, and then taking that to 500 locations, having an exit at some point along the way. Um, you know, franchising is attractive to private equity because, again, you're able to scale on the financial side. You're also able to create re- repeat revenue streams, a lot of recurring revenue. Um, and, uh, you know, they love the fact that there's skin in the game all around the country and the, they love the fact there's uh, attractive exits there's a lot of attention out there yeah you know i can i can really see that i mean it, it makes that makes a lot of sense to me um yeah that that makes a lot of sense the the idea that uh private equity can put that in their portfolio and and have it be something that almost grows by itself you know with skin in the game as, as you just said and the whole thing it just that really does make a lot of sense so what um you know, when, when a company thinks about, you know, the way they're going to sell their merchandise and let, let's say it's a seasoned company and they say, well, we can get distributors, you know, they want to sell more stuff. We can get distributors, we can get jobbers, we can license our material, we can get resellers of our material. You know, I, I would say the franchising doesn't come up high on the list, maybe because they perceive it's complicated or maybe because they think it, it's a, like a different category would be the one that would do it. I mean, so how do you talk to companies? I mean, somebody's going to listen to this and say, gee, I wonder if franchising could work for us. I mean, how do you walk them through whether it's right for them or not? Yeah, it really comes down to not only the type of business, but what their goals are for the business and the layer of control that they want to have over it. I just got the phone right before this with a marketing agency that is considering franchising itself. Um, you know, I'd say more and more businesses are waking up to the fact that there's so much more than fast food and that maybe they're in a sector that can be franchised, you know, from roll off dumpsters to IV drips to um, obviously lodging and food, which is kind of what you think about to automotive, anything that addresses the senior population. You know, what are those tailwinds to be had right now? 
my business partners and I, we own a pool cleaning franchise, a carpet cleaning franchise, a home cleaning franchise, mosquito franchise, driveway franchise. There's a lot of disruptive type businesses that are going into spaces that you know are largely mom and pops or locally you know operated, and they're going in with the power of a brand, the power of the shared buying, as as you mentioned, the technology and the resources to really be able to come in and take over markets. You know, life has just gotten so much more difficult for for the little guy. And this almost helps to level the playing field a little bit by giving them enhanced technology, by giving them ability to buy advertising, uh, by giving them, uh, you know, people that'll help them do their design work and some other kind. I mean, it just, I mean, you know, I don't think that, that a lot of companies think about this, but there are a lot of, a uh, lot of advantages to, uh, making this available to a company. And I think that you could create a lot of loyalty. How, how, does, how does consumer loyalty uh, stack up in a, in a franchise environment? I mean, I mean, yeah. is it, is it more because of the, because of this reason or no difference? Yeah. You know, it's hard to say exactly. I think it, it really is determined on the business, but uh, I'd say I'd err on the side of probably being a little more um, loyal to the brand. I mean, people do like brands, I think, coming out of COVID and knowing that uh, there's a quality and a consistency and just, a, um, you know, the fact that it's a brand and operates in multiple markets is attractive to a lot of people. But they also need to understand that it's locally owned and operated. You know, a lot of times people don't like the idea of Walmart coming in and taking over the mom and pops. But, you know, I think of like Mosquito Shield and our business up in Nashville you know, it's a large brand going against mom and pops, but it's locally owned and operated. Um, and so I think communicating that um, people love local ownership. And so I think there is a bond there. It's something that does have to be emphasized. And, and then you create that loyalty. Yeah. This just makes, I don't know, this just uh, really, really sounds pretty good to me. So if a company was to call you and say, look, we uh, here, here's our company. Uh, right now we distribute through, you know, resellers or however they distribute. How would you walk them through the process of thinking about whether something could be right for them or not? Yeah, absolutely. No. And I have this conversation, whether it be with YPO members, entrepreneurs, organization members on a, on a regular basis. And, you know, I help them understand what that day-to-day looks like. You know, you wake up one day and you're a franchise Oregon, you've got expectations from franchisees. Is that the world that you want to move towards? However, what is that end game? Are you working towards that exit five years, seven years down the road? Um, right now, what are the pros and cons of having a sales force out on the West coast versus, um, you know, opening up franchise locations out there, you know, how we talk about speed, we talk about um, risk, we talk about, um, you know, really what is that profit margin and what are you working towards? Again, I work a lot on the candidate side with those that are interested in exploring business ownership opportunities. So I bring that perspective to the conversation as well as having been a former franchisor and I was able to get a good view across all of our franchisees and see their backgrounds and see who made a good franchise owner. Um, You know, one thing I would pull from that is, while all the systems and processes are in place and a lot of things are done for you from a support standpoint, still it comes down to being able to work with people, knowing that local market, getting involved in the chamber of commerce. Um, it's being able to attract and retain and hire and fire the right kind of talent. You know, if you struggle in the corporate world with, you know, it's stuck in middle management and you can't work well with people, it's not going to be, uh, the grass isn't going to be greener in business ownership. So, um, you know, we talked through all those different aspects and, um, you know, and then I've got some great partners that actually will do the FDD and take a company through the process. 
You know, it also seems to me that you need to find franchisees that are willing to follow directions. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, in a certain way, these are not the, the franchisees are not what I would consider entrepreneurs. They're, they want to be self-employed. You don't really want a full scale entrepreneur because full scale entrepreneurs are, are going to go in any direction that, that they feel like going in in the morning and they, they come up with ideas and invent things and whatever they do. Uh, you know, you kind of want soldiers that want to just kind of be their own their own boss. Right. I mean, because if they don't read the instructions that are in the box, then the whole thing goes sideways from day one. 110%. No, you nailed it on the head, Joel. And, you know, I think about former military uh, individuals are great at franchising because they know how to follow the the playbook. And um, yeah, there are some that have to explain, you're a little too entrepreneurial, this isn't right for you. But the vast many number of people would rather start out on day one working towards profitability than trying to figure out, can this be profitable? What do I need to do to make it profitable? Uh, you start on third base rather than uh, at home plate. Yeah. I mean, you know, how many, is there any room for creativity like on the franchisee side? You know, uh, I mean, I remember, you know, when, when I was a kid, some franchisee of McDonald's invented the Big Mac. And I don't remember it was a contest, but somehow or another, some guy invented the, I think his name was Mac, invented the Big Mac. And, and it became like the biggest thing of the whole McDonald's. So how often does that happen? You know, where there's some input from the, from the, you know, the franchisees. It does. And it does happen in any good franchisor is going to want their franchise owners bubbling up ideas. And if they're a good franchisor, they're going to allow them to run with a lot of those, assuming it doesn't do anything to the brand. Um, but no, a lot of times I'd say the ideas may be less subtle or, or more subtle than the Big Mac it might be more like, Hey, you know, when we go into customer's home, let's, put this step into our process or uh, on the automotive side, you know, with the oil change, maybe we should add this add on service. You know, those are the kind of things that when you're getting the grassroots feedback from your customer base or from your employees, um, that you're able to bubble up. So I'd say the Big Mac example, less often, but tweaks to the process more often. All right. So listen, so I got a client, they, um, they're a large manufacturer and they sell through dealers. So what's what's the big differences between selling just to dealers and then selling to a franchise? Or selling through a franchise or to a yeah, franchise, I'm sorry. Through, through. Yeah, the franchise would obviously carry the same brand, whereas the dealer would not. Uh, so you'd have that shared uh, piece of it. You would also... Um, you know, have more control. I mean, you, with a license or with the dealership model, you really can't control uh, ultimately how they present the product at the end or how they, you know, what claims they make about it, how they speak about it. Um, and so, you know, for some, the dealership model or the license model makes a lot of sense. However, uh, you know, if it does lend itself to franchising, then again, it, it comes down to that level of control and what you can require of that, uh, that middleman. Okay. Well, you know, I don't know. This is, uh, it seems like a really good alternative to me for, uh, for this. And, and let's talk about franchisees for a minute. Uh, I mean, you know, are, are people leaving corporate America and in, investing? I, I guess they have some retirement funds in a lot of cases and they'll use those. I mean, what's, what's their success rate? Yeah, I have conversations every single day with former corporate uh, people or, or people that are currently in the corporate world and looking to start growing something on the side, what we call semi-absentee that they may step into full time. Um, so I could just tell you story after story. And uh, 
Yeah. So a lot of the people that are listening right now, some of your people may be calling and, and looking into franchise ownership. Um, so very common success rate, very high, much higher than if you were to buy a startup or start a startup or go out and buy an existing business. You know, there's more risk associated with that. Again, if you're a first time business owner, the support that comes through franchising lends itself to a much higher success rate. Um, so no, like I said, the 40% number, we're actually tracking ahead of that year to date. Um, a lot of interest out there right now. I think COVID's caused a lot of people to, again, to scratch that itch that they've always had to explore business ownership. Oftentimes people don't know where to start. They think it's just fast food. Um, but on the funding side, once they understand that, you know, while they can self-fund, they can also tap into retirement funds through what we call a ROBS program, uh, through their 401k or IRA, and we kind of defer you know, the tax impact there. Um, also, SBA lending is very, very common right now. Let's talk about financing for a few minutes because um say you buy a, a restaurant, you know, one of these franchise restaurants, you know, the, the, the 40 or 50 grand or whatever it costs on the front end, that's just a fraction of what it costs to get started. It might be 500 grand to build out the restaurant. And one of the, one of the things that I know, uh, you know, myself is, and, and you confirm if it's true or not, I mean, this is my, my assumption. If you can't find good bank financing, then, you know, then, then the lending world doesn't believe in that franchise. I mean, that, that's kind of something that I've kind of identified as, as a truth for, for me, kind of a rule of thumb. I mean, any truth to that? Yeah, and some banks are more likely to lend uh, to franchises than others. You know, I, I work with Fran Fund and Benetrends and Guide and some of these large players that do nonstop franchise lending day in, day out. They work with a slew of banks that all they do is franchise lending. And so they know the model. They know what they're looking for. They've oftentimes done deals with that brand before. Um, so it's a much more streamlined process and there's a lot, a lot less selling to the banks. So but yes, if a, bank, if a bank raises a lot of red flags and it's a newer franchise system, then yeah, you obviously want to ask questions. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's what I'm kind of getting back to is like the, the, this one where they sold the first one as a franchise, no bank would ever go near that because it's not really a franchise yet. It's just kind of like a, they're taking a flyer. But, you know, if you're an established franchise, one of the things that you know you have to do is you have to line up bank financing for your people. You have to help them get the money to buy into your system, right? I mean, that's, and so it's, it's part of their obligation not to give you the financing, but to help you to get it. Yeah, they oftentimes have preferred lenders, but you know, I think of a lot of deals that I've done where there wasn't a preferred lender. And, and again, they're relying on the banks out there that work with the Fran funds and the Benetrends of the world um, to to line that up the financing. Yeah. Well, listen, this is this has been pretty interesting. I mean, I'm I'm pretty fascinated by this, and I think it's a a very much overlooked alternative for some companies. It, it doesn't work perfectly for every company because it's a little more complicated than just having a dealership model. But, uh, but it also offers some uh, benefits that the dealership model certainly can't come close to. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're seeing more international interest as well. You know, brands leaving the US using franchising to go to other countries and vice versa. You mean, you mean where they're franchising in other countries, so they're, they're getting distribution in other countries through local proprietors that own their stores? Absolutely. And oftentimes we call it a master franchise arrangement. So they would find that right individual that knows that local country to then go and open other locations for them. And they give, they, they sell a territory or something. And then that person um, doesn't work for the, for the mothership, but has a contract with the mothership to oversee some things. Exactly. And then they reap the benefits as well. So it creates a middleman type relationship, but it works oftentimes for expansion. Yeah. Well, listen, it's almost like, you know, you got to build out a management network and, 
whether you pay them a salary or you pay them uh, based on performance as a percentage of the, let's say the royalties that you collect every month. I mean, it doesn't make any difference. The money is still moving back and forth. So, Hey man, John, you, uh, you know what you're doing here. You, you know, your stuff. Thank you for, for sharing that with us. Really appreciate it. And uh, you know, I'm, I imagine if uh, somebody wants to get a hold of you, your, your information will be in the show notes and uh, you're the man when it comes to franchising. So thanks for sharing. I well, appreciate you having me, Joel. Enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Audavita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audavita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.